no bank can survive a run on the bank. None. Zero. If enough people come and collect their deposits, the bank will fail. It's just not possible otherwise. That's the way banks work. When the bank fails, their finger pointing will start. Why did it fail? Well, they were buying longer maturity and they were getting this thing going on. And we can all build this back up. Yep, that is why they weren't able to meet the demands of the depositors when they were given. But every bank would have an explanation of why they couldn't meet the demands of the depositors if they had a run on the bank. Any bank would. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake McClure today, because Elder Baldy is off exploring ancient and deceased civilizations in the American uh, Midwest. Southwest? Uh, yes, there are. He is out. Uh, exploring his educational roots. A lot of people don't know this about him. He has his education from way back before I was born in cultural anthropology, which fits in amazingly well in economics because it's just the movement of people. Uh, he, he has a degree in that, and he's off exploring disappeared civilizations of the United States in New Mexico. Uh, so I've got the second week on my own. We got lots to talk about. Um, but before I get started, I have to give the disclosures. Number one, uh, I'm bald. I have a beard. I like puns. Uh, if that's problematic, you already know that the channel can be changed. Uh, this is the personal wealth coach. Well, that's a disclosure. I've told you the name of the program. But that name is also the name of a firm that I'm also the principal at and that uh, Elder Baldy is a principal at, and that is the Personal Wealth Coach, which is an SEC-registered investment advisory firm. Now, the radio program's not an investment advisory firm, but it's got the same name because we're doing the same sort of educational stuff. The SEC is where we register. That doesn't mean they like us. Yes, the SEC insists that anybody that registers with them tell everyone that they're registered with them, but then tell in no uncertain terms that registering with them doesn't mean that they're liked by them. That's not the term that they use, but you know, that it doesn't imply any um, uh, favoritism or that we have passed any specific wonder-seeking, we're the best type tests. Because uh, I don't know that I could. I took an IQ test and it came back negative. I think that's a good thing. All right. Um, but the firm's registered to give investment advice. If we can't do that on the air, we can't. What are we doing? This is an educational program. Why can't we give investment advice on the air? Uh, it isn't because there's some secret that would be told to the masses of the secret way to make money. It's because the advice that we give has to be custom tailored to the person we're talking to. 
and broadcasts have a one-size-fits-all deal. Uh, believe it or not, one-size-fits-all is not always in the best interest of the wearer. I know, it's weird. Uh, all right, next up, uh, the information that, that I'm going to be giving you comes from places that we have deemed to be reliable, but we are not warranting or guaranteeing the accuracy or completeness of that information. Anybody that does that is uh, probably not doing a good job. <laughs> Uh, and the last thing is we don't pay for this program. This isn't paid commercial advertisement. We do provide the program free of charge. We've been working for free um, for 25. I've been working at this radio program for 25 years through three different owners of the studio and station. And it was originally a panicked cry for help from the studio to fill some time with something that wasn't utterly boring. And they asked old Baldy to come in and do it. And he asked me to come and join him when they asked him to do two hours instead of one. So 25 years ago, I started talking to people on the air free of charge. And that insanity has continued. I don't know why we, I do know why we're doing it because number one, there's not enough education out there on the world of finance. What is economics and how does it fit in the world? How do you make decisions that will better influence your life? A lot of this stuff, they don't even teach you the tools to know that you have a decision to make. So just like public education, I'm willing to pay taxes to fund education. For many years, I paid property taxes when I didn't even have a kid in school. It's gasping really Shocking, I know. I was paying for other kids' education. But I think it's a good idea. It's an infrastructure investment, if you will. My words to you could hopefully allow you to make better decisions if that's not too egocentric. Uh, I think it, it does help. Question that's hanging out from, from a listener. And it kind of fits into all of this. Um, this is from Tom. And he wants me to address it on the radio program today. His question comes from a quote from our newsletter, which I'm going to take a time out for a second and compliment Elder Baldy Jeff on this. He writes this newsletter or the lion's share of this newsletter. By the lion's share, I mean if there's somebody else touching it, it's a small percentage of it, very small. And he's been doing this for decades. And the quality of the newsletter, I'm prejudiced here. Elder Baldy's my dad. Uh, I've been working with him for a long time, uh, 32 years now. And he puts out a newsletter. We put out a newsletter that is, uh, my opinion, it's better than anything you can read anywhere. I'm obviously prejudiced about this, but uh, those that have read it tend to agree with me. Those that read financial newsletters daily, and I do, this stuff packs in everything that we need or want and sometimes some educational tidbits too. Anyway, um, he's been doing this a long time. In our last newsletter, uh, we wrote that the one serious threat is that Congress will fail to raise the debt ceiling, thereby requiring the U.S. Treasury to not pay those owed money for debts mandated by Congress. Failure of the United States to pay its legal obligations would yank the foundation out of the U.S. and world financial systems and create a bona fide disaster. So his question is, what's the difference between this and the bailout of uh, FDIC where they're paying more than $250,000 on deposits? They're not supposed to be guaranteed where that money come from. 
why don't we do this with the federal obligations, with the U.S. treasuries? The Fed covered billions of dollars of losses that would have happened but can't pay out the debts we owe if the debt ceiling isn't raised? This is the question. I'm sure there's differences, and this is an elementary question, but it is not by any means an elementary question. Um, the concept of stock ownership is not well understood at the elementary level at all. So to get to a level where you're talking about debts of the government and the Federal Reserve actions, this is master's degree level, not elementary. So that's number one. I'm going to try to make this easier, though. When the Federal Reserve steps in to help the FDIC or any other bank, what are they doing? And I'm going to give you a, an example. This is not the United States as an example, but it's a good one because it's just happening. Credit Suisse, a great Swiss bank, and Swiss, the Swiss are, Swiss are known for really two things chocolate and banks, uh, or chocolate banks, if you went to go that far. But they're known for these two things. They have one of the wealthiest countries on the planet. Per capita, they live at a higher rate than almost anybody. Luxembourg is the only one that comes close, and they're just tiny. So the Swiss have a, a lot of good things figured out when it comes to banks. However, Credit Suisse, who just didn't have that much trouble during the global financial crisis. Has had a whole series of scandals since then. And you can say this about a series of banks. Like uh, Wells Fargo is another one where they've had a series of scandals, but they were really sound financially and made a lot of good decisions leading up to the global financial crisis. And then because they didn't collapse, they were the best in the world. They got some hubris and made a bunch of bad decisions. They've had scandals. Well, Credit Suisse has had scandals. They had a book value. What is a book value? When it comes to a company, a book value is very much like a net worth. So if you said uh, my net worth, including my real estate and my cars, minus my debt, my mortgage and my car payments and so on, get that stuff out of the way. What's the net of that? Well, that's the, the book value for a company. And Credit Suisse has a tangible book value of $45 billion. What does tangible mean? It means real stuff. It means they have assets to back that. It isn't like the theoretical value of the name Credit Suisse. Because what is that worth? It's really hard to put a value on that. People do, but it's not called a tangible value. You can't touch it. So they've got a book value of $45 billion. And the Swiss government is working with UBS, another Swiss megabank, to buy Credit Suisse assets for $7 billion. $45 billion being purchased for $7 billion. Yes, that is correct. So what's going on here? Um, in, in a case like this, the, the value of those investments that make up the book value if you sold them today, they'd be worth a lot less than if you just hold on to them for three to 10 years. Then all of, the loan, all of those losses disappear over that time period because they get closer to maturity. What, what is that about? Well, let me give you an example. If a bank is doing good things and you're paying them some money, I'm going to make up some numbers. Don't, don't try to find banks that are doing exactly this because if there are any, it's completely coincidental. <laughs> Say you put a bunch of money at a bank and you're getting a 3% uh, interest rate on that thing, which sounds great if you haven't been paying attention for a while because for 10 years, there's no way you could get that. Uh, but now you can actually get better than that. Okay, so you've got 3% coming in. That's great. Well, the bank is paying you that. That deposit is a loan to the bank. 
anytime you put money in the bank, you're saying, I'm loaning you this, you can do stuff with it, but I want it when it, I want it. That's called a callable loan. I can call you and say, give me my money. And you have to do it. That's my, my agreement. My contract with you is I call you, you and say, give me money, and you give me my money. Well, the bank, in order to make a profit, says, well, I have to keep some money on hand because obviously people are paying their bills and so on. They're going to be making withdrawals during the month. But probably not everybody is going to take their money at the same time. So I'm going to leave about 10% on hand. That's called the reserve requirement. The bank has 10% sitting there. Okay. Sounds like I've completely disregarded the question from that listener. Bear with me. It's coming. So the bank is, is getting a loan from you for 3%, and it turns around and makes a loan to somebody else for a car. For a three-year loan on a car, it's 6%. Well, you can see there's some profit there. They only have to pay 3%, but they're getting 6% back. What's more, that payment comes back with some of their initial investment. So it's not just the 6% coming back. Some of their principal is coming back. When you make a payment on your house or your car, it's not interest only usually. You're paying principal and interest at the same time. So the bank's receiving some principal back on that car loan, which means it can turn around and loan that back out to somebody else. And the rest is profit or at least it's earnings, they then have to pay their employees and so on. The rest is profit. Okay, so well, what happens if a whole bunch of people say, well, I want my money now, more than 10%. Well, then they have to start trying to find somebody else that will buy those car loans from them because those are worth some money. If you've got a three-year car loan paying 6%, you go, hey, who wants to buy these? Somebody should show up and say, I'll give you some. But if three-year car loans are now paying 8%, nobody wants to buy that 6% loan. Why would I give you that? I can get more for the same amount of money if I go somewhere else. I'll give you less money for that. Well, now the bank's not making a profit. They've got to sell these things at a loss to make good the deposit. And if they have to do it too much, it starts to look really bad. They're losing money hand over fist. Maybe have to lay people off. The depositors see this and they go, all right, I need to get all my money out now. And that's when the run on the bank occurs. So the, the original question is, why is the Congress debt ceiling not passing any different than a bank being bailed out? Well, when the Federal Reserve comes in, or the FD, well, let's start with the FDIC. The bank is failing. So the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation comes in and says, shareholders of that bank, you don't own it anymore. We're taking it and we're going to give it to a new bank who we're also going to pay depositors insurance out immediately to make sure everything's covered. And uh, at the end of this, this other bank has to determine how to deal with these assets. Oftentimes, the bank has, the new bank has to pay for the assets. So when Brayer Stearns failed, someone bought them. Lehman Brothers failed. Someone bought their assets. And quite often, the assets were purchased at a big discount. Bank of America and Wells Fargo made a huge amount of money during the global financial crisis over a long period of time because they bought up these assets from these other banks that were failing. So this is, this is one of the issues is scandals tend to follow easy money. Okay. So what happens if if the FDIC comes in and insures this, where do they get the money? Well, they're, getting, they're an insurance company. Now, it's a federally mandated insurance company, and they have to follow their rules. 
but their customers are banks and their banks pay them insurance premiums just like you do on health insurance or car insurance. You say, I have to pay for this in the off chance that something bad happens. Well, the banks have to pay FDIC. So the FDIC has a pool of money that it's sitting on that's just waiting for losses to occur. And then it goes in and fills the breach. Now, it's not really good for the owners of the bank. The insurance isn't for them. It's for the customers of the bank. The owners of the bank can lose their shirts, but the customers are supposed to be made whole. That's really important. So if the FDIC says, hey, we've been putting some of our money in longer-term assets too because we haven't had a lot of demand on it, can we just swap those out with you, Federal Reserve, for some cash? Well, the Federal Reserve says, sure, here, give us that $10,000 bond. When it matures, it'll be worth $10,000. But right now it's worth, let's say, $8,000. And we'll give you $10,000 on the books. All the Federal Reserve has to do is wait, and the federal government will pay them $10,000 when that thing matures. There's no loss here. Now, it takes time, and the Federal Reserve isn't going to do this for a bank that's still in operation because they have to sit on that stuff too. They have to wait for it to mature, for it to be worth what they paid for it. So it's not just a blanket, anybody can do this. Your bank has to fail for your assets to be treated this way. It's not good. It means you made a lot of bad decisions as a bank manager. Okay, so let's flip that. Where did that $10,000 bond that we're talking about come from, that we're saying has such a surety of being paid? Well, it came because the federal government. The Congress of the United States said we were going to spend some money, and we did spend the money. In order to spend the money, it had to come from somewhere, and anybody that's been following this knows that we're spending more money than we make every year at Congress, which means that we've got to borrow money. Well, that's what the treasuries are. These are loans to the U.S. government to pay for things like roads and so on. Um, and when people say, well, we're spending too much money, we need to cut, what I would remind people, if you take the retirement programs of the government, and by that I'm including um, the military and the civil service retirement packages, the social security package, and combine that, and you put Medicare involved as well. So that's just retirement programs and medical retiree programs. And then you add in defense. Well, now that's more money than we bring in with taxes, just those Retirement programs, retirement medical and retirement pension and defense. That's more money than, than we make in taxes. Anything else we do is borrowed. Now, it's not dollar for dollar like that. It's all mixed together. But if you just take those three major projects of the government and say, this is what we have here, any stimulus, any investment in infrastructure, highway construction, building broadband, that all has to be borrowed. And that's been the case for a long time. <laughs> um, when when we're, you look at the debt of the U.S. government, it's because anything that we do above defense and retirement is borrowed money. That's Im impossible to ignore. The U.S. Constitution says that we have to pay our debts. So that's important. The U.S. Constitution says the federal government must pay its obligations. Well, Congress is in charge of doing that. And just because the Constitution says they will doesn't mean that they'll get around to actually doing it. If they don't pay that $10,000 loan, then anybody that steps in to help these banks is going to fail because what they're doing is they're saying, all right, I'm going to give up some money for a few years to get it back at the, at the maturity 
point. And if we don't get that money, if Congress says, no, you can't have that, when we say the 10-year treasury is a benchmark, it's a benchmark because lots of loans are based on its rates because the treasury's collateral in a lot of loans. It's, it's how we know what interest rates should be charged on things because it backs up a lot of these loans. For the federal government to just say, no, I'm not going to pay, that's really, really scary. Let, let me kind of take a step back from this. The reason why the banks are failing lately isn't because people aren't paying their loans. That's what happened in the global financial crisis. Somebody had 10 houses that they said were their primary residence. Uh, that, that's not going to fly. I mean, you can't pay nine of the mortgages, so you don't. And Well, the banks have to eat that. That means money disappeared. That's not what's happening right now. Right now, it's just an imbalance in the interest rate curves. Uh, the banks that got caught with their pants down in buying stuff that had too long a maturity are, are really feeling it now. Those were bad decisions. They were seriously bad decisions. And any bank manager uh, has taken courses on how to not make those decisions. How to, <laughs> this is, I wish I could underline that better. Continuing education courses in the banking world deal with this problem every year and have for many decades, for probably a century. They've been telling about, hey, don't do these things in an interest rate cycle, kind of like what we have. And people get proud and they say, we've been saying not to do that for five years and people have been making money hands over fists doing it, so I'm going to do it too. Well, that's hubris. Um, it, the, the world doesn't change overnight it does tend to leave a boom going for just long enough for enough people to get burned. That's what's happened here. So why can't the Federal Reserve, it's got a lot of money, turn and bail out the U.S. government? Why doesn't it, this big bank, the Federal Reserve makes a lot of money? Well, where does it make it? Well, all the interest rate hikes that you're hearing about are interest rates that they're either paying or charging. And when they charge an interest rate, it's higher than what they're paying. The Federal Reserve is maintaining profitability throughout this. When, when they pull money out of the economy to fight inflation, it has to go somewhere. Now, it just goes on their, on their books. It's not even considered their balance sheet. It just kind of goes on the books as, hey, we've got a lot of money sitting in the background. In essence, they can reach back into that money and pull it out and throw it back into the marketplace. They've done that recently. Um, last week, I told you, $300 billion had been added to the Fed's balance sheet in a week. Well, another almost $100 billion, about $90 billion more was added in the last week. So we're getting close to $400 billion that was just pushed back into the system. And we can see on another area, the deposits have gone up about $300 billion at the Federal Reserve. What does that mean? It means that they're issuing liquidity to banks to prevent them from failing. They're saying, anybody else out there have this stuff going on? We'll give you a loan. You have to pay us interest on it, but that loan is offset with your, with your treasuries that you have out there. So you're in good shape. Extra money has been given to the banks. If Congress doesn't pay its bills, all of that goes away because it's all fundamentally based on one premise that we can trust the government to pay its bills. Uh, this is true everywhere. <laughs> the, if there's any country that's set up as the place that everyone believes will not stop paying its bills, it's the United States. It's why so many other countries 
are willing to loan money to the government of the United States. So there's a lot of people that say they shouldn't be. We don't want to have loans from China or wherever. Their loan, by the way, their balance on their loans have been dropping drastically to the United States as, as our relationship has gotten worse. Japan holds more of our loans than China does at this point. So that's kind of to set things at ease. I, I really can't underline how important it is that the federal government pay its debts. Well, what is the debt ceiling anyway? Well, let me kind of go back in time to what happened when we first set up the United States government. Congress would pass a law to say, we're going to build a road from Pennsylvania to Boston. And uh, then they'd have to pay for it. So they'd pass another law authorizing a bond to be issued to pay for the road. And it would be named, the bonds would be named after the project, very much like a municipal bond when they're buying a stadium. They'll say this is the uh, school district bond for stadium date, and, and it'll say what that's used for. Well, in, two, in 1917, Congress got lazy. Well, it got more lazy. Maybe it just realized it was lazy. And they said, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to pass one law at a time saying we have to pass another law to make, get more loans. We're going to put a ceiling on it. And until then, the Treasury can just make loans to pay for the stuff that we've agreed to do. Congress has voted to do it. We don't need another law so that you can make some bonds so that we can pay for it. So that's been the case ever since. And Congress passes laws that says this is what we're spending. And then the debt ceiling, um, all the way up to the debt ceiling, the bonds get issued to pay for it. Congress said recently, we're going to pay for this other stuff. They knew at the time that that was going to put us above the debt ceiling. But it wasn't time to vote on the debt ceiling yet. So the next Congress gets to vote on raising the debt ceiling. They can't change the budget that's already been passed. We've already spent that, a big chunk of it. But they can't say we're not going to pay the people that we borrowed the money from to do that spending. And that's just about as unethical as that sounds. It's like going to a restaurant with a group from the office. Everybody makes their orders. You show up a little late, but you get to eat too. And then you're the guy with the company credit card. And um, as the bill comes due, you say, no, I'm trying to cut back on our credit card expenses. They're just absolutely enormous at this point. So I'd rather not pay this bill. <laughs> That's not how you cut back on your credit card expenses. You cut back by not eating, <laughs> by not eating out, by cutting expenses, not by spending the money and then refusing to pay for it. And this isn't a large group of people. It's, it's at most two dozen people in the House of Representatives that are uh, unfortunately all in one party. Uh, which makes it a partisan issue no matter which way you go. There's no way to look at this as other than a partisan issue. And it's by a, people, by a group of people that most want us to have a balanced budget. It's like they have this ethical cause to make sure that we don't spend too much money, but they're doing it after we already spent the money. So I can agree with their reason for wanting to not raise the debt ceiling, but that's not how you cut spending. That's how you make restaurants go out of business because of, I mean, this is how Elon Musk cuts spending. Nope, I'm just not going to pay you back. I already spent the money. Uh, that's, that is not a good idea. And when it comes to the federal government, it would literally make a financial collapse across the world. It would, be, it would make the global financial crisis look like peanuts. 
Hopefully we don't do that, but this is what brinksmanship is. When you're playing chicken with each other and you're, and you're saying, no, they're going to swerve, don't worry. They know this is going to kill us all if this happens. There have been too many times in history where they said, the other side's going to blink first, and neither side blinked, so they had a head-on collision. And that is something that we want to bring to everyone's attention this is not the way to go about balancing the budget. It really isn't. Um, the Congress of the United States this year, later in the year, has an opportunity to pass a budget that they can cut all kinds of stuff in. They can, they can, and it's veto proof. All they need is a majority in the, both the House and the Senate to say, hey, we're not going to pay all this other stuff. So what, what is the deal? Why aren't they doing that? Well, they're not doing it because this makes a better political spectrum. This is, a, this is when, you, when you throw this in the media, it's a stand by a small minority standing on their ethics against the horrible spenders out there. But it, that's not what's going on. That's just how it's portrayed. So it's a big deal. And, and to say it, I wish it wasn't as complicated as it was for us to just be able to say, yeah, we pay our debts. Our word is our bond. The word of the United States is going to be broken if we do not. Uh, and that's, you know, when it comes to, to us saying, hey, we're going to come and help Haiti, and we don't, well, that's not really the word. We just kind of sort of said we might, and nobody agreed on it, so it didn't happen. When you have a vote of Congress, that means we've agreed on it, and it's signed into law by the president. That means everybody's like, yep, this is what we're doing. And then when we don't do it, that's a different level of breaking your word. It's, it is really not good. And it puts a lot of doubt on just about everything else in the system. And this, this is the piece that's maybe the most important about what, our, what we're saying. The entire financial system is simply built on confidence, on our belief that it's there, on our belief that it's worth something. I mean, what is money? It's a piece of paper or some kind of an electronic signature in your bank account that says you've got a certain balance there. Well, what is it? Well, it's backed up by the Federal Reserve and Congress, so we can use it to buy stuff. Well, what backs that? Our belief in it. That's it. That's true across any currency. It doesn't matter if it's chickens or cowrie shells or pennies. It's based on our belief that it's valuable. That, that we have the ability to say this piece of paper, it's kind of green and it's got pictures on it, but it's worth more than the paper and the ink. It's worth more than any kind of an artistic mass-produced piece of paper should be. Well, why? Well, because it represents a contract that it says it's worth what it's worth. Our belief in it is what's important. There is no bank on the planet that could survive all of its depositors taking their money out. It's, there's just not any. Well, why not? Well, because that's how banks work. They, they don't have all their money on hand all the time. They can't, or they wouldn't be able to pay their staff. They wouldn't be able to do anything. They wouldn't be able to pay you interest on their loans. So in, in the cases of SVB, if they hadn't had the run on the bank, they'd be fine. Uh, if they had their normal depositors just doing their normal deposits and normal withdrawals, even the people that leave one bank and go to another bank in the course of day-to-day -day activity, they'd still be fine. It was the belief that they weren't fine that caused them to collapse. And that's not a bad thing or a good thing. That's just how banks work. So banks in general, the money that we use, the debt that we trade, 
when when you buy a car and you don't have enough money to buy it all at once, that contract that you sign, why is somebody going to give you money to pay for your car? Because they believe that you're going to pay it back. It's trust. It's confidence. And how do they have trust and confidence? in? Well, you've got a track record, and that's measured in a credit score. You have a track record of being trustworthy. The federal government has a track record of being trustworthy. If you miss a payment on your car uh, 30 days, it's not that big a deal. No problem. Say, hey, we'll, we'll forgive that. You're fine. You just pay it back. No problem. 60 days, people start to go, that's a little weird. 90 days, you're not paying. Okay, that's, that's a problem. What's going on here? Did you lose your income? What's happening? And that's going to have a bad impact on your ability to get loans in the future. Your credit score is going to drop. That credit score is just a measurement that banks have said how profitable you are to them. And if you pay all your loans back and you borrow a lot of money, they love you. If you don't pay your loans back, for some reason, banks don't like you so much. And if you don't pay your loans back as a country, think of Greece and how we think of their country when it comes to the trustworthiness of their government. Um, we've been looking for this stuff for so long. And what's going on here? I'm going to come back to something that I said just a few minutes ago. No bank can survive a run on the bank. None. Zero. If enough people come and collect their deposits, the bank will fail. It's just not possible otherwise. That's the way banks work. When the bank fails, there are finger pointing will start. Why did it fail? Well, they were buying longer maturity and they were getting this thing going on and we can all build this back up. Yep. That is why they weren't able to meet the demands of the depositors when they were given. But every bank would have an explanation of why they couldn't meet the demands of the depositors if they had a run on the bank. Any bank would. Say you've got a bunch of three-month loans that are paying slightly more than what you're paying on the overnight deposits, which is kind of the way you look at it when you've got money at the bank. It's an overnight deposit. Even though you're leaving it there longer, it's because you could show up overnight and say, give it to me, and they have to give it to you. Okay, so they're buying three-month stuff and it's, or, the, and, or making loans out there for three-month stuff, and it's paying a higher percentage than your overnight stuff. Well, if everybody showed up and said, I want my money now, it's harder to sell three-month stuff than it is to sell overnight stuff. So any bank would fail under these circumstances. SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Republic, they were doing these things more, and they had more deposits of really wealthy people, which means, by definition, more than the insurance limit at the FDIC. And people get nervous. If you've got $10 million sitting at a bank and you know the bank might fail and you'll only get $250,000 back guaranteed, you might pull your $10 million out. Why'd you have $10 million there to begin with? The $250,000 insurance didn't change once, you know, in the middle of this conversation. It's been there for a while. Well, the answer is that you have to put your money somewhere and people tend to put their money in places that they believe are safe, but are also paying them slightly more than the other places that they also believe are that are safe. If someone is paying you more money than other someone's and they both and they all claim to be as safe as each other, there's an issue there. The more that they're willing to pay you, the less safe they are. Why is that? It's like a credit score. If you've got the best credit score on the planet and you want to buy a house, 
And the loan company says, we'll give you a loan for 19% on that house. Well, you're not going to do that. You're going to say no because you got a good credit score and you could go to somebody else and get a lower rate. Nobody wants to pay more than they have to, and that includes a bank. They don't want to have to pay you more than they absolutely need to to get your deposit. So why are they paying you more than somebody else? Well, because they're putting their money in something that's more profitable, maybe, hopefully. Well, more profitable also means more risky, always. There's, there's no time when that doesn't work out unless you're dealing, you know, no, it's guaranteed and no risk at all. Well, that's, <laughs> that, those are major red flags. When somebody says guaranteed, no risk at all, but we'll pay you a lot more than those other people will. That's danger. When it comes to banks that are paying higher interest rates, like SVB did, just know that they have a greater degree of risk on the parts that aren't insured by the FDIC. How much more risk did they have than the rest of the banks? Not tremendously more, except that they were concentrated in one group of customers, people who were venture capital and startups. Money that's really, really large amounts, that means uninsured, they're above the FDIC limit, and who are usually nimble about moving their money around. They're not as sticky. If, if you've got a bank, the likelihood is, you listener, that you've had the same bank for a long time. Well, why? Because it's kind of hard to move banks. You have all these auto payments on your bank account that are paying for your utilities and your cable and your internet connection and your trash pickup. And well, man, if you move the bank and you forget to move one of those things, it's just a pain. Well, they're not paying very much interest. Yeah, but you know, I don't want to really want to move. It's going to take me too much time. It usually only takes an hour or two to do this, by the way, but you have to be kind of organized in the approach. So on the small depositor end, by small depositor, I mean they've got less than $250,000 in there. Banks tend to be really sticky. You get in and it's just such a hassle to get out that you just decided not to do it. New companies or venture capital companies aren't sticky to anybody. And this is, I've given advice to startups for years and years and years. And my statement to them consistently is venture capital are the people that show up to the wedding with the divorce papers already signed and they do it openly they're not doing it meanly they tell you hey i'm going to get out of this as soon as i can no commitments they tell you that in writing everywhere you look venture is like that with banks too they're like it with everybody they want to they they believe that by moving quickly and changing things drastically, that they'll be able to get ahead of the curve. And it's kind of like the guy that went to the grocery store and bought up all of the toilet paper in the pandemic and said, I was so smart, I bought it up before anybody else could. Well, yeah, because you're the one that bought it up. Now nobody else can buy it. <laughs> you, that's a self-fulfilling prophecy too. That's a run on the, on the bank. Uh, yeah, and by run jokes, you know, um, I, I don't know if I should say this joke yeah, I'm not going to say that joke. Not on the air. If you'd like to talk to us off the air, we're about out of time for this hour. we got another hour coming up. But if you'd like to talk to me off the air or us off the air, we do give investment advice and portfolio management to people of relatively high net worth, to trusts and foundations, partnerships, co companies, and so on. Um, the local number with voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week, 
is 254-947-1111. You can reach that toll free, assuming you have a landline at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can read our newsletter and sign up for it. It comes out every Friday. Uh, You can listen to our program going back lots of years. There's podcasts wherever you find podcasts, small size, big size. It's amazing stuff. You can contact us on our contact contact form or jeff at tpwc.com and jake at tpwc.com.